Chapter 2 Where does the power in willpower come from? Whether or not ingestion of foodstuffs with preservatives and sugar in high content causes you to alter your personality somehow or causes you to act in an aggressive manner, I don't know. I'm not going to suggest to you for a minute that that occurs. But there is a minority opinion in psychiatric fields that there is some connection. Defense's closing argument in the trial of Dan White, the murderer whose taste for junk food inspired the term Twinkie defense. I have terrible PMS, so I just went a little crazy. Actress Melanie Griffith, explaining why she had filed for divorce from Don Johnson, only to immediately withdraw it. If willpower isn't just a metaphor, if there is a power driving this virtue, where does it come from? The answer emerged by accident from a failed experiment inspired by Mardi Gras and the other carnivals held on the eve of Lent. Mardi Gras means Fat Tuesday, the day before Ash Wednesday, when people prepare for a season of fasting and self-sacrifice by shamelessly indulging their desires. In some places, it's known as Pancake Day and begins with all-you-can-eat flapjack breakfasts at churches. Bakers honor the occasion by producing special treats. The names of the delicacies vary from culture to culture, but the recipes generally involve gargantuan quantities of sugar, eggs, flour, butter, and lard. And the gluttony is just the beginning. From Venice to New Orleans to Rio de Janeiro, revelers move on to more interesting vices, sometimes under the cover of traditional masks, but often just letting it all hang out. It's the one day you can strut down the street with a beaded headdress and nothing else, proudly parading to cheers from drunks. Losing self-control becomes a virtue. In Mexico, married men are officially granted one day of liberty from their obligations on what's called El Día del Marido Oprimido, the Day of the Oppressed Husband. On the eve of Lent, even the sternest Anglo-Saxon churchgoers are in a forgiving mood. They call it Shrove Tuesday, derived from the verb shrive, which means to receive absolution for sins. It's all rather confusing from a theological standpoint. Why would the clergy encourage public vice with a package of pre-approved absolution? Why reward premeditated sinning? Why would a merciful, benevolent God encourage so many already overweight mortals to stuff themselves with deep-fried dough? But to psychologists, there was a certain logic to it. By relaxing before Lent, perhaps people could store up the willpower necessary to sustain themselves through weeks of self-denial. The Mardi Gras theory, as it was known, was never as popular with scientists as it was with pancake eaters and peacock headdresses, but it seemed worth an experiment. In place of a fat Tuesday breakfast, the chefs in Baumeister's lab whipped up lusciously thick ice cream milkshakes for a group of subjects who were resting in between two laboratory tasks requiring willpower. Meanwhile, the less fortunate subjects in other groups had to spend the interval reading dull, out-of-date magazines or drinking a large, tasteless concoction of low-fat dairy glop that was rated even less enjoyable than the old magazines. Just as predicted by the Mardi Gras theory, the ice cream did seem to strengthen willpower by helping people perform better than expected on the next task. Fortified by the milkshake, 
they had more self-control than did the unlucky subjects who'd been stuck reading the old magazines. So far, so good. But it turned out that the joyless drink of glop worked just as well, which meant that building willpower didn't require happy self-indulgence. The Mardi Gras theory looked wrong. Besides tragically removing an excuse for romping through the streets of New Orleans, the result was embarrassing for the researchers. Matthew Galliott, the graduate student who had run the study, stood looking glumly at his shoes as he told Baumeister about the fiasco. Baumeister tried to be optimistic. Maybe the study wasn't a failure. Something had happened, after all. They'd succeeded in eliminating the ego depletion effect. The problem was that they'd succeeded too well. Even the tasteless milkshake had done the job. But how? The researchers began to consider another possible explanation for the boost in self-control. If it wasn't the pleasure, could it be the calories? At first, the idea seemed a bit daft. Why should drinking some low-fat dairy concoction improve performance on a lab task? For decades, psychologists had been studying performance on mental tasks without worrying about its being affected by a glass of milk. They liked to envision the human mind as a computer, focusing on the way it processed information. In their eagerness to chart the human equivalent of the computer's chips and circuits, most psychologists neglected one mundane but essential part of the machine, the power cord. Chips and circuit boards are useless without a source of energy. So is the brain. It took psychologists a while to realize this, and the realization came not from computer models, but from biology. The transformation of psychology based on ideas from biology was one of the major developments of the late 20th century. Some researchers found that genes had important effects on personality and intelligence. Others began to show that sexual and romantic behavior conformed to predictions from evolutionary theory and resembled aspects of behavior in many animal species. Neuroscientists began to map out brain processes. Others found out how hormones altered behavior. Psychologists were reminded over and over that the human mind exists in a biological body. This newly emerging emphasis on biology made the milkshake experimenters think twice before dismissing their results. Before writing off that dairy glop, they figured, maybe they should take a look at its ingredients and start paying attention to stories from people like Jim Turner. Brain Fuel the comedian Jim Turner has played dozens of roles in films and television series, like the football star turned sports agent on HBO's Arliss series. But his most dramatic performance was reserved for his wife. It occurred the night he had a dream in which he was responsible for righting all the world's wrongs. It was an exhausting duty, even in a dream. But then he discovered teleportation. To travel anywhere, all he had to do was think of the place and he'd magically appear there. He went back to his old home in Iowa, to New York, to Greece, even to the moon. When he woke up, he was convinced he still possessed the power. He generously tried to teach it to his wife by shouting over and over, You think it! You go there! And you be there! His wife had a better plan. Knowing he was diabetic, she tried to get him to drink some fruit juice. He was still so crazed 
that he poured some of it over his face, got up, and then demonstrated his power by doing a somersault in the air and landing back on the bed. Finally, much to her relief, the juice kicked in and he calmed down. Or at least that was how it looked to his wife, as if the manic frenzy had subsided. But in fact, he hadn't been sedated. Quite the reverse. The juice's sugar had given him extra energy. More precisely, the energy in the juice was converted to glucose, the simple sugar manufactured in the body from all kinds of foods, not just sweet ones. The glucose produced by digestion goes into the bloodstream and is pumped throughout the body. The muscles, not surprisingly, use plenty of glucose, as do the heart and liver. The immune system uses large quantities, but only sporadically. When you're relatively healthy, your immune system may use only a relatively small amount of glucose. But when your body is fighting off a cold, it may consume gobs of it. That's why sick people sleep so much. The body uses all the energy it can to fight the disease, and it can't spare much for exercising, making love, or arguing. It can't even do much thinking, a process that requires plentiful glucose in the bloodstream. The glucose itself doesn't enter the brain, but is converted into neurotransmitters, which are the chemicals that your brain cells use to send signals. If you ran out of neurotransmitters, you'd stop thinking. The link between glucose and self-control appeared in studies of people with hypoglycemia, the tendency to have low blood sugar. Researchers noted that hypoglycemics were more likely than the average person to have trouble concentrating and controlling their negative emotions when provoked. Overall, they tended to be more anxious and less happy than average. Hypoglycemia was also reported to be unusually prevalent among criminals and other violent persons, and some creative defense attorneys brought the low blood sugar research into court. The issue became notorious during the 1979 trial of Dan White for the assassination of two city officials in San Francisco, Mayor George Moscone and Harvey Milk, a member of the Board of Supervisors and the most prominent openly gay politician in America. When a psychiatrist testifying for the defense cited White's consumption of Twinkies and other junk food in the days before the murders, journalists mocked White for trying to excuse himself with a Twinkie defense. In fact, White's chief defense wasn't based on the argument that the Twinkies turned him murderous by causing his blood sugar levels to quickly spike and then crash. His attorneys argued that he deserved mercy because he suffered from diminished capacity due to severe depression, and they presented his junk food consumption, along with other changes in habits, as evidence of his depression, not as the cause of it. But when White received a relatively light sentence, the popular wisdom became that the Twinkie defense had worked, and the public was understandably outraged. Other defense attorneys actually did argue, with limited success, that their clients' blood sugar problems should be taken into account. Whatever the legal or moral merits of that argument, there certainly was scientific data showing a correlation between blood sugar and criminal behavior. One study found below-average glucose levels in 90% of the juvenile delinquents recently taken into custody. Other studies reported that people with hypoglycemia were more likely to be convicted of a wide variety of offenses, 
traffic violations, public profanity, shoplifting, destruction of property, exhibitionism, public masturbation, embezzlement, arson, spouse abuse, and child abuse. In one remarkable study, researchers in Finland went into a prison to measure the glucose tolerance of convicts who were about to be released. Then the scientists kept track of which ones went on to commit new crimes. Obviously, there are many factors that can influence whether an ex-con goes straight. Peer pressure, marriage, employment prospects, drug use. Yet just by looking at their response to the glucose test, the researchers were able to predict with greater than 80% accuracy which convicts would go on to commit violent crimes. These men apparently had less self-control because of their impaired glucose tolerance, a condition in which the body has trouble converting food into usable energy. The food gets converted into glucose, but the glucose in the bloodstream doesn't get absorbed as it circulates. The result is often a surplus of glucose in the bloodstream, which might sound beneficial, but it's like having plenty of firewood and no matches. The glucose remains there uselessly, rather than being converted into brain and muscle activity. If the excess glucose reaches a sufficiently high level, the condition is labeled diabetes. Most diabetics aren't criminals, obviously. Most keep themselves and their glucose levels under control by monitoring themselves and using insulin when necessary. Like Jim Turner, one of the rare actors to make a good living in Hollywood, they can succeed in the most difficult endeavors. But they do face above-average challenges, particularly if they don't monitor themselves carefully. Researchers testing personality have found that diabetics tend to be more impulsive and have more explosive temperaments than other people their age. They're more likely to get distracted while working on a time-consuming task. They have more problems with alcohol abuse, anxiety, and depression. In hospitals and other institutions, diabetics throw more tantrums than other patients. In everyday life, stressful conditions seem to be harder on diabetics. Coping with stress typically takes self-control, and that's difficult if your body isn't providing your brain with enough fuel. Jim Turner deals with his self-control problems directly, and hilariously, in a one-man show titled Diabetes, My Struggles with Jim Turner. He recalls moments like the argument with his teenage son that ended with him, ostensibly the adult, getting so mad that he went outside and kicked a permanent dent into the family car. There are many times, Turner says, when my son can see I am not in control, when he has to force me to drink some juice, when he is afraid that I am just not there. Turner doesn't use any version of the Twinkie defense to excuse the dent, and he doesn't feel sorry for himself either. On the whole, he keeps his diabetes under control and says the disease hasn't stopped him from being happy and fulfilling his dreams, except for that one about teleportation. But he also recognizes the emotional consequences of glucose. There are so many little moments of connection that I have missed, he says, that I wasn't available to my son because I was busy dealing with a low blood sugar episode and too overwhelmed trying to figure out what was going on. It's the single biggest heartbreak of this disease. What exactly happens to Turner during those moments? You can't draw definitive conclusions from any anecdote 
or even from the large studies showing above-average problems with self-control among diabetics and other groups of people. Correlation is not causation. In social science, the strongest conclusions are permitted only when researchers use experiments that randomly assign people among different treatment conditions so that individual differences even out. Some people arrive at the experiment happier than others, or more aggressive, or more preoccupied and distracted. There is no way to guarantee that the average person in one experimental condition is the same as the average person in another experimental condition, except by counting on the law of averages. If the researchers randomly assign people among treatment and control groups, the differences tend to average out. For example, if you wanted to test the effects of glucose on aggression, you would have to consider that some people are already aggressive while others are peaceful and gentle. To show that glucose caused the aggressiveness, you'd want about an equal number of aggressive people in the glucose and in the no-glucose conditions, and also equal numbers of pacifists. Random assignment usually does this pretty well. Once you've got representative groups of people, you can see how they're affected by different treatments. Nutritionists use this method during food experiments at elementary schools. All the children in a class were told to skip breakfast one morning, and then, by random assignment, half of the children were given a good breakfast at school. The others got nothing. During the first part of the morning, the children who got breakfast learned more and misbehaved less, as judged by monitors who didn't know which children had eaten. Then, after all the students were given a healthy snack in the middle of the morning, the differences disappeared as if by magic. The magic ingredient was isolated in other experiments by measuring glucose levels in people before and after doing simple tasks, like watching a video in which a series of words flashed at the bottom of the screen. Some people were told to ignore the words. Others were free to relax and watch however they wanted. Afterward, glucose levels were measured again, and there was a big difference. Levels remained constant in the relaxed viewers, but dropped significantly in the people who'd been trying to avoid the words. That seemingly small exercise of self-control was associated with a big drop in the brain's fuel of glucose. To establish cause and effect, the researchers tried refueling the brain in a series of experiments involving lemonade mixed either with sugar or with a diet sweetener. The strong taste of the lemon made it hard for the tasters to know whether real sugar or diet sweetener was used. The sugar gave them a quick burst of glucose, though not for long, so the experimenters needed to get to the point pretty soon. The diet sweetener didn't furnish any glucose or indeed any nutrition at all. The effects of the drinks showed up clearly in a study of aggression among people playing a computer game. At first, the game seemed reasonable, but it soon became impossibly difficult. Everyone got frustrated as the game went on, but the one who got a sugar-filled drink managed to grumble quietly and keep playing. The others started cursing aloud and banging the computer, and when, by prearranged script, the experimenter made an insulting remark about their performance, the glucose-deprived people were much more likely to get angry. No glucose, no willpower. The pattern showed up time and again as researchers tested more people in more situations. They even tested dogs. While self-control is a distinctively human trait, 
in the sense that we've developed it so extensively in the process of becoming cultural animals, it's not unique to our species. Other social animals require at least some degree of self-control to get along with one another. And dogs, because they live with humans, must often learn to bring their behavior into line with what must seem to them to be absurd and arbitrary rules, like the ban on sniffing the crotches of house guests, at least the human ones. To mimic the human studies, the experimenters first depleted the willpower of one group of dogs by having each dog obey sit and stay commands from its owner for 10 minutes. A control group of dogs was simply left alone for 10 minutes in cages, where they had no choice but to remain and therefore didn't have to exercise any self-control. Then all the dogs were given a familiar toy with a sausage treat inside it. All the dogs had played with this toy in the past and successfully extracted the treat, but for the experiment, the toy was rigged so that the sausage could not be extracted. The controlled group of dogs spent several minutes trying to extract it, but the dogs who had to obey the commands gave up in less than a minute. It was the familiar ego depletion effect, and the canine cure turned out to be familiar too. In a follow-up study, when the dogs were given different drinks, the drinks with sugar restored the willpower of the dogs who'd had to obey the commands. Newly fortified, they persisted with the toy just as long as the dogs who'd been in cages. The artificially sweetened drink had no effect, as usual. Despite all these findings, the growing community of brain researchers still had some reservations about the glucose connection. Some skeptics pointed out that the brain's overall use of energy remains about the same, regardless of what one is doing, which doesn't square easily with the notion of depleted energy. Among the skeptics was Todd Heatherton, who had worked with Baumeister early in his career and eventually wound up at Dartmouth, where he became a pioneer of what is called social neuroscience, the study of links between brain processes and social behavior. He believed in ego depletion, but the glucose findings just didn't seem to add up. Heatherton decided on an ambitious test of the theory. He and his colleagues recruited dieters and measured their reactions to pictures of food. Then, ego depletion was induced by asking everyone to refrain from laughing while watching a comedy video. After that, the researchers again tested how their brains reacted to pictures of food as compared with non-food pictures. Earlier work by Heatherton and Kate Demos had shown that these pictures produce various reactions in key brain sites, such as the nucleus accumbens and the amygdala. These same reactions were found again. Among dieters, depletion caused an increase in activity in the nucleus accumbens and a corresponding decrease in the amygdala. The crucial change in this experiment involved a manipulation of glucose. Some people drank lemonade sweetened with sugar, which sent glucose flooding through the bloodstream and presumably into the brain. Dramatically, Heatherton announced the results during his speech accepting the leadership of the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, the world's largest group of social psychologists. In his presidential address at the annual meeting in 2011 in San Antonio, Heatherton reported that the glucose reversed the brain changes wrought by depletion, a finding, he said, that thoroughly surprised him. Baumeister, sitting in the audience to watch his protege enjoy the moment of glory as society president, recalled his own surprise when his own lab had first found the links to glucose. 
Heatherton's results did much more than provide additional confirmation that glucose is a vital part of willpower. They helped resolve the puzzle over how glucose could work without global changes in the brain's total energy use. Apparently, ego depletion shifts activity from one part of the brain to another. Your brain does not stop working when glucose is low. It stops doing some things and starts doing others. This may help explain why depleted people feel things more intensely than normal. Certain parts of the brain go into high gear, just as others taper off. As the body uses glucose during self-control, it starts to crave sweet things to eat, which is bad news for people hoping to use their self-control to avoid sweets. When people have more demands for self-control in their daily lives, their hunger for sweets increases. It's not a simple matter of wanting all food more. They seem to be specifically hungry for sweets. In the lab, students who have just performed a self-control task eat more sweet snacks, but not other salty snacks. Even just expecting to have to exert self-control seems to make people hungry for sweet foods. All these results don't offer a rationale for providing sugar fixes to anyone, human or canine, outside the laboratory. The body may crave sweets as the quickest way to get energy, but low-sugar, high-protein foods and other nutritious fare work just as well, albeit more slowly. Still, the discovery of the glucose effect does point to some useful techniques for self-control. It also offers a solution to a long-standing human mystery. Why is chocolate so appealing on certain days of the month?